Episode 33, The Crusades, Part 2. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Last episode, we left the city of Jerusalem in the hands of the Crusaders. The Crusaders took a guy named Guy, and they made him the king. King Guy. Okay, that was probably pronounced Guy, but King Guy has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Hey, dude, check it out. It's the King Guy. Well, King Guy is actually his name. We also mispronounced the main Muslim general's name from the Second Crusades. His name was Salah Adin Yusuf Ibn Ayyub, but we know him as Saladin, and he was a very astute general. The Second Crusade was called after the Crusader Kingdom of Edessa was recaptured by the Seljuk Turks. The Second Crusade took place all over Europe, though, including battles in Spain, Eastern Europe, and the Holy Land. It was only actually successful in Spain. And like I said last episode, when you're talking about the Crusades, really you're sort of only concerned with the Crusader knights in the Holy Land. That's kind of the vision you have in mind. Anyway, some of these crusaders went to Edessa in the Second Crusade, but Edessa was never recaptured. So the crusader army in the Holy Land decided instead to attack Damascus, which is a huge fortified city, and there they were completely destroyed. So the Second Crusade is kind of a non-event in some ways, at least in the Holy Land. So now we're on to the Third Crusade. The Third Crusade actually started before the Third Crusade was even called by the Pope. It started with fighting between Guy, Guy, and Saladin, and it was Saladin's resounding victory over Guy that caused the new Pope to call for yet another crusade. In response to the incursions of the Second Crusade, the Seljuk Turks had rallied some new armies, and they had put Saladin in charge, and Saladin was a really good general. Saladin started fighting the existing crusaders before the Third Crusade was even called. Guy, who was chosen as the king of Jerusalem, had been a noble in Lusignan, France. Now he was the king and the leader of an army of about 1,200 mounted knights and about 15,000 foot troops of varying quality. A few weeks earlier, Saladin had defeated a smaller crusader army and Guy rallied his army to go face Saladin. So in July of 1157, the two armies met near Tiberias, which is on the Sea of Galilee. Quick side note here. Included in the Crusader army were knights from two relatively new orders of knights, which had been created there in the Holy Land after the First Crusade. These orders were called the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templar. The Knights Hospitaller had been created to be a group that protected a hospital that had been built in Jerusalem to care for sick pilgrims. Since the Crusader kingdoms were often under attack and often raided by bandits as well, a group of knights came together and formed their own religious order centered around protecting the hospital. This is sort of similar to something like the Jesuits being a religious order focused on education, except with knights and swords and shields. Now, the Knights Templar, who were created in 1119 AD, were started by a Frankish noble named Hugh, 
who came to the Holy Land as a pilgrim and decided to create an order of knights devoted to protecting the pilgrims who came up from the coast to Jerusalem. The Knights Templar were given a building near the Temple Mount as their headquarters, thus the name. So you got the knights over there by the hospital, that's the Knights Hospitalar. You got these other knights over here by the temple, that's the Knights Templar. And you get that other odd group of smelly knights over there by the trash heap, the Knights Dumpster. These orders lived more like monks than like noblemen, which was how knights tended to live back in Europe. The orders became popular, and many pilgrims joined them. They dedicated themselves to their military arts, and they took vows of obedience, and as they grew, they became some of the most effective fighting forces in the region. They also became the stuff of legends, as it was rumored at different times that the Knights Templar had found the Ark of the Covenant, or the Holy Grail, or the Spear of Destiny. Of course, we all know that it was actually Indiana Jones who found most of that. These military orders expanded, eventually having branches all over Europe and becoming secret societies, sort of like the Freemasons or the Men in Black. Anyway, these orders took part in some of the battles of the Second, Third, and Fourth Crusades. So, back to the action outside Tiberias. King Guy, I mean, Guy, uh, ah, was about to face off with Saladin for the first time outside Tiberias. The Crusader army was having trouble finding water, and they lost discipline trying to get around Saladin's army to get to the Sea of Galilee to, fi to find the water. Saladin completely outmaneuvered them, and the entire army was captured or killed. King Guy was also captured, but apparently was treated well by Saladin. Saladin then turned and marched to Jerusalem, and after he offered the city relatively lenient terms, the city surrendered. So this crusader kingdom of Jerusalem was gone. The Pope at the time, Urban III, supposedly died from the shock of hearing that Jerusalem had fallen. He was replaced by Gregory VIII, who then called for the Third Crusade in October of 1187. One of the first people to take up the call of the Third Crusade was a prince who was in line to inherit the throne of England and Normandy. This was Prince Richard, and at the time of the call for the new crusade, he and his younger brothers were fighting against their father, Henry II, for control of the English holdings in France. Now, this is the same Richard that I mentioned last episode. Richard the Lionhearted. Heck of a nickname, that. He earned the name because he fought bravely and from the front lines in all of his battles and because he was a pretty aggressive leader. Henry died, leaving Richard now the new king of England and most of France. Richard, who was very committed to the crusade, sold off a lot of land and he sold some noble titles to raise money. He raised an army, he raised up a fleet as well, and he sailed to the Holy Land. Richard, who is apparently a bit of a hothead, was not content to sail straight to the Holy Land, though. Oh, no. First, he stopped in Sicily, and he stormed the city of Messina, where his sister Joan was held hostage. He captured the city and released her, and took her with him to the Holy Land. But he stopped first on the island of Cyprus on his way to the Holy Land, and he conquered that, too. He ran out of Mediterranean islands, though, and he actually did eventually get to the Holy Land. He and his armies captured the port city of Jaffa, and made their way to within sight of Jerusalem, but they were never able to take the city. So, Richard entered into negotiations with Saladin 
and even proposed marrying his sister Joan, who he had brought along, to Saladin's brother, Saphadin. But both sides objected to this on religious grounds. Eventually, they did work out a treaty where the Crusaders kept the cities that they currently held, agreed not to attack Jerusalem, and Saladin granted free passage of Christian pilgrims to the Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. So it was sort of a win-win on both sides, in a way. Richard sailed home, sort of victorious, but on his way home, he was captured by the Germans, and he was imprisoned for a while, though he eventually made his way back to England. Saladin, for his part, died about a year after the truce was reached. So, overall, the Third Crusade was kind of a stalemate, with some crusader cities still in the Holy Land, but the Muslims firmly in charge of Jerusalem. The Fourth Crusade ended up being a bit of a surprise, because instead of besieging Jerusalem, the European Crusader army this time besieged Byzantium instead. Whoops! The Crusaders were promised help by the prince of Byzantium, a guy named Alexios, who wanted help restoring his father to the throne because his father had just been deposed. When neither Alexios nor his father ended up on the throne, the Crusaders, who were there around Byzantium, decided, hey, let's just take the city for ourselves. Surprise! They conquered Byzantium and they just stayed there. They never made it to Jerusalem, which stayed in Muslim hands. Crusaders held Byzantium for about 55 years when it was eventually conquered by the remnants of the Byzantines, who then restored the Byzantine Empire. So, the legacy of the Crusades was a lasting split between the Eastern Church, who were mad about the conquest of Byzantium and the Western Church, and also a lasting split between the Christians of Europe and the Muslims of the Middle East. So, all in all, not a great record there. The Church has been criticized for calling the Crusades and then having Christian knights participate in those Crusades and also criticized for the barbarity of it all. I agree in the sense that from our point of view today, the church should have nothing to do with conquering land and killing infidels. It's not really the church's job. But in the Middle Ages, you have to admit that the church had a different role and everyone had a different worldview. So nowadays, in our current world, if someone decides to become a Christian, it's a personal choice. Maybe you decided to follow Christ and no one else in your family did. Something like that. It's normal today. But in the Middle Ages, it didn't work that way. It wasn't just you that decided. It was your whole family or your whole village or tribe or even your whole nation. If your king decided that your whole tribe or country was now Christian, well, you just went along with it because that was how the tribe operated. It wasn't just a personal decision. It was an alliance with all the other people in your tribes and then all the other tribes and nations that had chosen Christianity. Or Islam. It worked both ways in both religions. Anyway, once your tribe or nation was now Christian, you kind of had an obligation to protect your brother Christians, even if they were way across Europe. It wasn't just a religious issue. It was a whole nation, a whole brotherhood, a whole way of life, a whole point of view. Maybe a modern analogy would be that if you lived in Oklahoma and Texas was attacked by the Mexican army, you would feel an obligation to go help them. Or let's flip that. If you lived in Guatemala and Mexico was attacked by Texas, you maybe feel an obligation to go fight and defend your Mexican brothers. And if you add in religious alliances and religious opposition, it becomes a pretty strong cultural force obligating you to go to battle 
to defend your brothers and sisters in another part of the world who you've never met, but they're being attacked by someone that you view as hostile. So there's this sense where the Crusades were a legitimate response by Europe to hostile attacks on Christian land. And it's maybe not surprising that it was the church that called for it at the time. In the Middle Ages, the church and politics, church and secular rulership, they they weren't divided like they are now. Europe was sort of split up among a bunch of squabbling kings and dukes, and the only thing that could unite them against a common enemy was the church. It was a bit like that, only a bit, so bear with me here, but it's a bit like the church was the federal government of Europe in the Middle Ages. So there's all these small governments, but the church was kind of the overarching thing above it all. So when a small kingdom in the southeast of Europe was attacked by Muslims, the other small kingdoms of Europe normally wouldn't really care until the church stepped in and said, hey, this is a threat to all of us. And then the squabbling kings got together to go fight a common enemy. One of the things that is overlooked in the criticism of the Crusades is that the Muslims of those days were a legitimate threat. Invaders from the East had been a problem for Europe since the Persians had been trying to conquer Greece back in episode 8. So in a sense, Europe was justly defending itself from attack from the Muslims and the Persians and all those people down in the Far East that they didn't know or trust. And especially the Seljuk Turks, who were very, very aggressive and who were taking land that had been Christian for almost 500 years. But then, on the other hand, knowing what we know of the church and the Bible now, it it does seem like there were some serious excesses. It's hard to judge the brutality of the medieval world by our current standards, and it's also hard as a sedentary citizen sitting in our comfy couches to judge the warriors who had been camped outside an enemy city for nine months struggling to survive while they waited for supplies. So the crusader armies who ravaged the cities they conquered did exactly the same thing as other armies had done, including the Muslim armies had done in many cases. They did exactly the same things that the Romans had done hundreds of times. And we kind of idolized the Romans for having done it. Still, all that being said, it does seem that at times the crusader armies abandoned their own ideals and they fell back on the barbarism that is typical of war. And that because they were crucisignatus, bearing the sign of the cross, maybe they should have held themselves to a higher standard. I kind of think that way. In the end, the Crusades, which were called in response to Muslim encroachments on Christian land, seem like more of a military effort than a Christian effort. A military effort with a sort of a Christian veneer across the top that doesn't really fit it. In the end, the Crusades were not all that effective either. After the Fourth Crusade, Turkey, the Holy Land, Literally all of the Levant remained in Muslim hands until the creation of the nation of Israel in 1948. That's a whole other war, though, and we'll get there in good time. Next episode, we are going to look at the earliest examples of novels and literature that we have from the Middle Ages, including Beowulf and King Arthur, when we take a look at medieval literature. No, seriously, medieval literature. It's so cool. See you next episode.